0: Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who also speaks super secret hotel language.
1: I do actually. I am the Adam Glass, and I used to work in a hotel, well, so I, I, I speak all the secrets. That's what languages.
0: I figured, because because it's funny, because you know, you know, we're supposed to understand that this is the language of the country, but yeah. we we get very little evidence of that. Yeah, and so yeah. it just seems like possibly everybody speaks secret hotel language.
1: <laughs> it's just these guys; these guys are so bored with their lack of customers that they have just created their own language.
0: Right? They're they're essentially like eight year olds
1: over summer yeah. vacation. I, I mean, the porter barely <laughs> talks anyway. It's mostly just smiling and nodding. So, which is definitely part of the secret. The secret. Oh yeah, hotel language. all
0: that mean stuff, right? I mean. It's yeah. it's similar to hobo language or like uh, Yeah. You know, something like that, right? You're gonna you're gonna like That's, if
1: you look very closely at a fancy hotel, you'll see where the employees have left uh, left signs written in chalk. On the door on frames the walls, and stuff. Yeah. On the door frames.
0: <laughs> yeah, th- this person does <laughs> actually that tip. does
1: that does remind me. Very shortly after I started my fancy hotel job, uh, we had a fire scare. Uh, where the alarm went off, and but I thought, I thought to your I your was supposed to be fireproof. It is. It, it it is fireproof. It was built to be fireproof in 1897, which means it's full of asbestos. <laughs> um, will not burn. Uh, <laughs> it will give you crazy
0: good cancer, but will not burn.
1: Yeah, will not burn. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> uh, so there was a fire scare, and it it was my job as the room service attendant. To me and my my partner, uh, there were two of us on. Were to go to every room in the 188 room hotel, knock on the door to make sure that the you know, that it was empty, and put a chalk X on the door. Uh, when we right, I've it was seen empty. that they do that
0: with schools yeah. and stuff too.
1: Yeah. So the first the first door I get to, I knock. It's a corner suite, and uh, and the alarm had been silenced by then. It went off. Uh, and then they silenced it, and then they went off again, and then they silenced it again, and then called the fire department, and we started evacuating everyone. But it was the middle of February. It had snowed about a foot over the course of the week before, so it was cold, and it was wet outside and snowy. Um, so they actually evacuated everyone to the lobby. All of the guests. Right, so when the building the burns lobby. down and collapses, everybody yeah. will die in uh, the lobby. Well, until, until we discover whether or not the fire is real, and... Since that cynicism
0: the, leads to death.
1: It was it was a circle building, so above the lobby yeah, there was just yeah. a glass ceiling and then open above it. So there was no chance of uh, some sort of catastrophic collapse killing anyone, but there was a good chance of a catastrophic collapse blocking the exits. So um, it was a bad idea, don't get me wrong. But it was it was for the comfort of the guests, and it was a time when there weren't a lot of people at the hotel, so there were probably only sixty people total. But they didn't give me a list of rooms that should have been occupied. They just gave me gave and told me to go you a knock piece on of chalk doors and said go knock on doors. Yeah. So so I say, the first room I knock on, there's a guy in there, and I I say, sir, uh, the fires alarm went off. He says, They're not going off anymore. I said, yes, we silenced them, but we're still asking people to evacuate. This is an actual emergency. Uh, and he just goes, "Eh." <laughs> That's his response. Did he leave, and or don't did know, he just stay? I don't know how to respond to that, so I just I decided. Well, I'll get back to him. The room is a, the the floor is a circle. I will get back to him, uh, and and we'll see how things go in in five minutes when I'm done checking all the other rooms. So I start going down, and I get two rooms in, and I get the all clear signal on my radio. So I go back to his door. And uh, and I knock again, and I say, Sir, no worries. Uh, I've gotten the all-clear signal. He says, I know. I was, so how do you know? No, you don't. You don't know. You're just too lazy to leave.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love that there's a, there's a fine line between, like, the, the people walk where they're like, uh, uh, what's the percentage chance I'm going to die?
1: I haven't smelled smoke yet. Is it worth I'm me on the sixth... being annoyed and yeah. troubled? I'm on the sixth floor of a brick building. I can always jump out the window. Gosh, I don't know what his plan was. I well, I, I assume but, it involved old-timey left. firemen sir, with trampolines. Uh, sir. The man, the fire, uh, the building may be on fire. Eh. eh. Uh, so this week, we are talking not about someone ignoring information presented to him, but but uh, the lack of information with uh, Ingr- uh, Ingmar Bergman. I almost said Ingrid, who's a different person. Yes, it is. Uh, Ingmar Bergman's uh, final film in his God trilogy, The Silence, originally titled God's Silence. Uh, this is... I think the only film in the series whose Swedish title is is an actual translation of the English title, or vice versa, because the Swedish one came first, obviously. Um, Because it's working in Swedish. Uh, Really? Yes, originally called... Um, Sorry, no, I just decided to I know, I know. I know. You do that sometimes, and I love you for it. Um, (laughs) So the original Swedish title is The Silence, or or "Tisnaden." uh which i am certainly pronouncing wrong it seems reasonable uh, but yeah uh <laughs> it is the capstone it is after this film that bergman decided that these films were his trilogy of faith uh his god trilogy which
0: i i have a problem with
1: yeah yeah actually i i think i know where you're going because this is the one that feels the least uh the least spiritual, the least religious. Right.
0: It's, it's, it's very pragmatic. I mean, it very much deals with, like, crises in one's life, but it's very much a day-to-day crisis of yeah. communication, not a crisis of faith. And, uh, the other two deal much more strongly with faith itself. And
1: Yeah. In, uh, in knowing that this that Bergman views this as part of his trilogy, I started trying to maybe read into it too much. Okay. Uh, uh, so. Uh, um, so I started interpreting the porter the porter as God. Uh, <laughs> Speaking a language nobody in, can understand. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, in man. ever-present force. But uh mostly behind the scenes, speaking a language we can't and then people I, we generally can understand unless they need something. and people generally tend to ignore, but always always doing his best to help uh even even when that help is fairly benign <laughs> which which ultimately seems uh the uh the most positive deistic interpretation of where Bergman is headed with his faith trilogy, right, so yeah, no i think I think I think it's
0: just I think honestly it's just. We either we don't understand, or he kind of maybe missed the mark a little bit on what he's
1: ultimately. Ultimately, Esther and Anna are two aspects of humanity. You know, two types of
0: right. And you can take it that high level, and I
1: get that. I mean, and and that's that's all. We can't really take it much higher than that. Uh and have it have it make sense or have evidence of what right you know, and, and... we could get into the through the glass darkly um about uh you know he talks there about uh the re- people's views of god being reflections of their relationships with their parents uh, but we don't really get into uh the kid uh, johan's Interpretation of God at all, you know. We don't really talk. We don't talk about God about basically God. at all. And just the fact that this was titled "God's Silence" to begin with, um, you know, this is if this is part, this is completely, completely a negative. You know, it is not. We don't get any sign of God, even a sign of questions about right. God. And I, I think uh,
0: maybe and perhaps. We are deal- Berman dealing with the idea of like, well, okay, if we go to the extreme and say there is no God, what does that universe look like? And here's two sisters fighting, well, sort of fighting in that really universe. Yeah, sort I mean it's kind of, of like it's kind of like a really shitty episode of Sliders. I don't know.
1: Yeah, um, they have it into they slid it slid into the universe where God doesn't exist, right. And everything's exactly the same, except there's a war on, right? Yeah, no, no right. everything's exactly the
0: same. Nobody speaks English, and uh, all siblings fight.
1: That actually sounds like a like an episode. Oh, slash. it does. So.
0: God, I both love and hate that show <laughs> for, for uh, all the reasons we just listed. I will never forget <laughs> the math the math elite episode. <laughs> Is burned into my mind where they slide into the universe where, where, like, like being super smart is, like, equivalent to being a, like, a superstar athlete, and they have this really absurd game that they play, that's based on like knowing, basically like, um, what was the name of that the club in uh, high school?
1: Uh, academic challenge. Yeah, similar. The, uh, they had like to answer a bunch stuff. of
0: kind of. You know, weird trivia questions. But there's still a physical component, which I found really hilarious because the whole point was it's being brilliant is supposed to be better than being athletically, you know, skilled. But there's still an athletic component to the game that they're playing. So it's...
1: Because watching people answer questions is really super boring.
0: Um, But that that episode always is... I don't know why it's burned in my brain other than the fact that it's just a really stupid concept. And it really feels like the writer of that episode was like fucking jux, and then like wanted to write like an I I don't know, but absolutely I want I need before where this goes okay is on multiple occasions in my adult life, I spent upwards of ten to fifteen minutes trying to construct the world history that leads to a universe where that's true, where this exists because in the end that's a thing that no Sliders writer ever does. Is yeah. try to figure out how this universe came into being, uh, yeah. and nonetheless, it's something I love to do because their all their universes are super stupid, for the most part. Yeah, and so you're it, it's almost up to the audience to construct this insane universe yeah. unfolding of history where this
1: came to pass. And that one's my favorite one. And whatever, it's, it's whatever ridiculous. the thing that changed, even when they they make it more explicit, like the Brits won the war, uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, they they quelled that rebellion. Uh, There's only, like, one aspect of society that has changed because there's still a low-budget television show. Yeah, I know, exactly.
0: You're still dealing with, like... So everyone dresses a little
1: nicer, and they drive British cars, and British cars break down more. (laughs) And that's... that's Right, and then, like, yeah, and then a lot of times they
0: don't even have the budget for that, and so, like, it's always very, like, locked down into a single set. It's like, well, this is all... We're going to see all the examples of this universe in this single set.
1: I did love – there's one episode where they accidentally uh, – it, like, opens with them having just jumped into the universe where uh, the big one hit California, uh, and they're just on top of the pyramid building in San Francisco uh, waiting for the next portal to open <laughs> as uh, because they are uh, – they're standing there just inches above wa- shark-infested water. Oh, nice. Um <laughs> there are
0: some, there are some fun ones, but you know it's which, just,
1: which was fun, but but it's not, it's obviously it's not an entire episode dedicated to them being yeah. in that universe, right, right? No, which
0: would have been a better episode, but
1: <laughs> maybe no. I just
0: I, I sliders. I just I actually own the box set at, back in America, but because it costs zero hmm. money, <laughs> even even like ten years ago, they you just could buy the entire box out. set, the entire every season for like thirty bucks. So yeah, I should go back and watch. This that. Film, I think it's on Hulu
1: i i really don't know uh this film is interesting uh in that uh bergman expected it to be a complete failure he also kind of expected it to get rejected by the censors and he wasn't Uh, he sent it to the he sent it to the censors uh and they had just reformatted their rules and it came back completely uncut no one no one said a thing about anything uh, and he expected it to be a failure because he he knew it was inaccessible. Uh, you know the, the, the dialogue is sparse <laughs> and uncommunicative. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, by by the description uh, on I don't know what Wikipedia is uh, uh, alluding to there. Uh, but in 1970, he told an interviewer uh, for Swedish uh, television. Uh, Maybe not for Swedish television. I could be misreading that, misinterpreting that. But he says, uh, "quote I said to Ken Fonts, the CEO of Swedish Film Institute, which had produced the film, uh, you might as well realize this isn't a film that will have people storming the theaters." Oh, the irony! That's exactly what people (laughs) did. It became an international hit. People loved this movie. Uh, Now there is there is some suggestion that in America and and uh, uh, England. Uh, and some other places, it was a period interest in the film. Yes. It was it, um, like the, well, the crowds the... that stormed for I Am Curious Yellow.
0: Um, I uh, I watched uh, the, the little wrap up, that sort of like little tiny mini interview documentary yes, thing yes. that they had on there. And oh, basically good. the you, guy... You
1: watched it, when I didn't. Excellent.
0: Um, the guy basically digs into the fact that like we can pretty much be certain that people watched it because of in many ways, similar to things like you mentioned that we've watched before where it got a lot of interest based on oh this thing is not um it barely got past the censors kind of thing or yeah. like we're only doing a limited showing because like they say it's 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 too erotic or whatever I mean legitimately, there is a couple having sex now mind you they're <laughs> they're having weird sex uh in in as much as that they are both wearing most of their clothes um in a theater but uh which is fine if that's what you're into but most people have sex with their you know their pants off as far as i know
1: um, <laughs> i don't know pat
0: well i don't know i'm just i'm always it it feels like that um uh, what is I, it is it what's it, what do they call it the the u-shaped blanket thing
1: I just feel like you're projecting your personal experience onto it. That's, that's true. That's true. But I feel you like... haven't had sex with most people, uh, so you I don't. I think know. you're wrong about that, Adam. Uh, <laughs> no, no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know you as well as I no. Thought. No. I,
0: what, I, what I'm saying is, is that but if we're going to say that, then the the weird you know TV trope U shaped blanket phenomenon is also people projecting their beliefs about what is normal on to other people right because i don't know maybe lots of people hang out like in their bedroom that way yeah you know you know what i mean like i don't know but like in general i think people are or are are at least partially naked and frankly the only (laughs) thing that's naked in there is that woman's breast which makes me think that like maybe that's what you can get past the censors after they change the rules yeah oh breasts are okay
1: Rests are okay. I don't know. Uh you know, very shortly after this we get things like I Am Curious, uh, where where obviously Sweden was uh, Sweden at least was a little more open about male nudity. Uh whereas it might be it might be telling that uh with I Am Curious we get stories of American censors uh uh grabbing the film at the at the border, uh whereas there is not such a backstory for for this film, uh, you know, those European, those silly European art house films, we can still let female nudity happen as long as they, uh, there's no suggestion of uh, un, unsimulated sex, uh, which is really what got uh, I Am Curious Yellow into trouble. Right. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, this film, that that theater scene is overtly pornographic <laughs> right and
0: that's what I mean Is it, it's um that, that's it's, semi- it's and, definitely and that's what got as far as people are I, I think Bergman even is quoted saying I can't remember the exact quote shoot it's something like I've never uh, I've never reached so many so much of an audience that I didn't want or something like that yeah I, I yeah. forget what the exact I wish I could find the exact quote because they they talk about it
1: in that thing but I don't see it in that's uh in, is Bergman so disconnected from reality that he doesn't realize that's what happens when you put a topless woman in your movie you you lay it you bury that under whatever philosophical conversation you want people are coming to see those breasts
0: well exactly and but i I think it's it's a funny thing though like I can um totally picture him being like not not realizing I mean I think totally I could see him understanding that that's what happened but not seeing it before it happens as the logical consequence of filling your movie with breasts being being
1: so interested in his art that that he doesn't you know what I mean Yeah.
0: yeah. I mean he very clearly does understand that people came and watched the film because it's full of nudity Um, and may or may not have comprehended the overall meaning of the film at all um, yeah, but <laughs> it, nonetheless, I can see him not realizing that until it's much, much too late. That like filling a movie full of breasts, especially, and then shipping it off to countries where that's such a a novelty. Yes, is going to have a very obvious result. Because like, let's face facts. Like, this is even as much as like 80s films and many of those kind of films were it, in a world where in, in a universe where nudity is hyper restricted the logical conclusion is is that things will become popular just because they have a little bit of it in them and yeah. then you send this off to a country that has that, that system in place like the United States at, especially at this time um, and yeah, the logical result is, yes, I made this super depressing art house film that, uh, deals with my personal angst and, and lack of understanding about how to deal with the rest of the universe and my place in it. Uh, but everybody just watched it because of boobs and didn't understand. <laughs> yeah. Is what, I mean, it's gonna, it's just, it's a weird thing though. When you think about it, um, that's a really weird universe to be in. <laughs> <laughs> like and I could I could almost forgive him for not realizing that like people would watch something this almost upsettingly painful just for, to see for some breasts. Yeah, I mean that's remarkable when you think about it. how desperate does somebody have to be for breasts to sit through this. Now, mind you, you and I sat through it, and not
1: just because of breasts. Um, oh, I had no I had no idea that there were breasts. I, neither did I.
0: But I, um, yeah. You know what what I, mean? I mean is, like, you know, but you know what I mean.
1: We like, are talking about 1963, oh, right. though. This is a pre-internet time. Oh, okay. Breasts were harder to come by. That's
0: that's true, and that's what I am kind of getting at. But, like, bear, bear in mind, there were plenty of countries where breasts were more accessible than the United States in, in in the 60s. Like, where, I mean, most places still had really strict pornography laws on the books that exactly. made it. Yeah. Well, I mean, but there were plenty of other places where that was not necessarily the case. As much, or where pornography laws were generally kind of ignored uh the United States was not one of them the
1: United States was not one of them not at all uh to the point where i'm I'm kind of surprised we don't get stories about this being seized uh but but perhaps it was uh perhaps it's good that it starts so late uh into the game that uh that this movie the the uh U.S. censors were already depressed. Yeah, they had the already given up.
0: They were like, oh, God, I can't, <laughs> no.
1: can't oh. do this anymore. He said it's the third one in a trilogy, right? We watched the first two. They were fine.
0: Yeah, right, right. They didn't, there was no boobs in that at all. Um, yeah. Only spider gods and
1: crazy <laughs> shit like that. In 1963, America, you definitely talk about a spider god and not get eh, not worry about the censors. 1943, America, not so. Yeah, much, no,
0: but... spider gods would be a, a fast ticket to having to rewrite your entire movie. Um, yeah. No, it's it's fascinating because, in many ways, that element of it, the way it's just sort of it's in there, yeah, is so kind of casually thrown about. It shows a total lack of that being of any significance at all to the right. director, which leads to the point where, like, why I indicate indicated, like, this is a man who just did not understand that filling a movie full of boobs would gather the largest audience he would ever have from hyper-sexually repressed states.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, <laughs> they're though, just, Because they're just in yeah. there,
0: mostly, other than the explicitly pornographic scene at the theater, which does have its purpose in the story. Which I I, I yeah. like the fact that, like, it's very clear he's not just... He is both kind of just casually throwing them around because they're not important to him. Yeah. But he's also very much using it as a part of the story of that character. And I find that quite yes. fascinating. Uh,
1: it's also kind of interesting... Uh... There's a lot of peripheral ways where this could be described in the same way as a pornographic film. There's only 1,700 words of dialogue, <laughs> right? Time. Which I I is probably
0: my favorite part of the film. In yeah. all honesty, if we're being totally honest, my one of my favorite things about this film is the fact that it the commodity of word uses is, is so good. Yeah. I mean, most of the story is told with nothing being said at all.
1: Yeah, and and obviously most of most of the communication between uh, our main characters and the, uh, the locals around them are pantomime. You know, right. They're not talking. But, uh...
0: Well, and what's fascinating to me, okay, is, is in many ways a film with this little dialogue in it is usually the kind of thing where you get a, a director who sees themselves as an artist and And decides that this is a challenge they want to take on, you know what I mean yeah and then and the net result of that is always in my opinion, not usually not very good um, but also those kind of films tend to overdo it and try to cut out all dialogue or or om- almost almost all you know what I mean where you get into this sort of like oh it's yeah. a challenge of to myself to, to tell a story without any dialogue. Whereas, you very rarely find yourself in a story where the director said, well, I only didn't do it as a challenge to themselves, so therefore there is dialogue. But there's just such a hyper commodity, you know, a hyper um, concern for not using too much. And I, I, I love that about this film. I love that we just walk through this, this world and, and feel these feelings without any necessity for um, speaking, for the most part. I, I think it's that part is brilliantly done. Yeah, absolutely. I was reading the the Wikipedia a little bit, but um, they talk a little bit. Uh, Bergeron has commented in numerous interviews that the film marked a point of final exit from a set of religious problems that have been dominating his film since the Seventh Seal. Um, it's 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 fascinating because it's it seems like we're not too far off the mark about like universe with no god, um, <laughs> lack yeah. of communication being kind of the standard point of existence almost and and, and with the sister's lack of communication and their ability, inability to communicate with the outside world being almost a metaphor for an inability to understand our place in the universe and, and our our lack of ability to communicate with each other being directly reflective of our lack of ability to communicate with God. Um, I, I suppose would be the sort of way to draw that as a conclusion.
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> and that's that's the only way that this really fits, and and because Bergman himself says that uh, that it fits, that's what I have to assume is what he's going right. For, right. Although,
0: but like I didn't watch it particularly with that in mind, and I think you and I probably came yeah. from very different places while we were watching this film
1: because you very clearly did. You just went in and watching another. Movie. I just watched another. I just watched another movie, not in the context of the trilogy. I yeah. mean, I definitely, Wait, I true. definitely
0: thought about on a very surface level connections to the other trilogies, in, in as much as like looking for similarities of style or or or, or direct content, you know. Yeah, um, and and there are those as well. Uh, although stylistically, it's quite different than the other ones. Um, the in that. Well, it gets. Go ahead.
1: It gets more into. Uh, the chamber film concept, in that the chambers here feel more and more claustrophobic.
0: Yes, but it's interesting because in the um, that interview with the that I watched, it yeah. they talk about this is very different than other Bergman films, and I agree because I, I didn't I noticed it, but I didn't really think too much about it until I saw this guy's commentary on it. But um, the film is filled with actual moving cameras. The cameras are constantly oh, in true. motion, which is a thing Bergman doesn't yeah. do. Yeah, I didn't think about that at films, all. Which makes it very not chamber film. Because yeah. cameras moving defies the concept of a chamber film, if we consider it a concept at all. Because your audience should theoretically be stationary. Right yeah. and large. Um, and your audience is... And the guy talks about it in most Bergman films. At most, you get a dolly into a face shot. At most. Yeah, it's the the most you could ever ask for from a Bergman film, as far as camera motions, concerned. and the camera is all over the fucking map in this film. It's moving around constantly,
1: and certainly, uh, you know, we still get all of those uh, really exquisite, like face shots, uh, you know, well, yeah, close ups, and 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 those and that are those are thing, part but...
0: and parcel of a Bergman film anyway, but. Like what he's yeah. talking about is like, for example, one of the ones that they used as an example on that documentary thing was when the kids talking to um, the guy doing the chandelier. Or the camera's moving around constantly in that scene. Like it's it's yeah. shown from the perspective yeah. of that guy. It's shown from the perspective of the kid. And then most of the time, the kid is actually being followed by the camera, like actively. Whereas normally in a Bergman film. We wouldn't actually even see the characters' motion between places at all, hardly. Usually, yeah. Bergman films we go stationary camera shot, to stationary camera shot, with hardly any transit at all by the actors. Yeah, yeah, that's the absolutely ca- actors true. all ha- possess amazing, miraculous teleportation abilities in, in, in Bergman films, <laughs> uh, and that's fine. I mean, he just he likes those set piece style of design rather than an motion. But this movie doesn't. This movie, the camera moves both actively during the shot and a lot during scenes, which is really different. And and really, like I said, it's not really, uh, really defies the concept of a chamber film, if we, if we have to be honest. So I think it maybe doesn't even count in his line of chamber films, because it's so. And in many ways, the movie is also less meditative than the other two. I mean it it talks about I mean it's definitely addressing this very important uh struggle that people have uh, with their place in the universe and their relationship with others and apparently with God um it it deals with that but it deals with that through actions whereas in the other two films we mostly deal with that through meditation and self uh you know uh not, what am I, what's where of like uh you know, you know, with the characters actually looking in on themselves and talking about, and and trying to grapple with their insecurities and problems. Whereas this movie is a little bit, we do see the characters doing that, but they also are quite active while they're doing it. Yes, which is very different. Um, it works fine. I like it. It does a good job. But you know, um, both of our two main, fe- our, our our main characters are both quite m- full of motion. Even 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 our bedridden one uh, is, you know, Esther is even quite active for somebody who's yes. bedridden for the most part. And and so, you know, that's a very different
1: style completely. Yeah, uh compared to, you know, our other bed- bedridden Birdman characters like uh in uh, Autumn Sonata, or the, the one whose name I can't remember, with the three sisters. Um, yeah, we um, do this every time. every time <clears throat> you and yeah, I every time remember I, that you name name I that can't movie. remember the name of it. Uh, <clears throat> but yeah, even even then, you know, there's not a lot of movement of, of characters. Um, no, it, it tends and, to be and quite stationary. In this stationary. one, our, 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 you know, our, our very sick deathbed character uh, spends the first half of the film... Uh, Medicating herself with cigarettes and vodka, <laughs> right? And and
0: and she is quite filled with motion in general. I mean, she's in and out of bed. Um, I mean, when she's like, she's you know, her sickness causes her to be quite active in 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 as much as she can't breathe. Um, yeah, I think the cigarettes are probably not helping with that, but who am I to judge? Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, when you have a lung disease, you probably shouldn't be. Uh chain smoking smoking quite so yeah. much yeah probably not it seems like okay. a seems like a,
0: a bad idea but you know whatever There's
1: a different time then in a different place war torn war torn fake uh, European country fake European country
0: I <laughs> that it's such a it's such a fascinating place to place it's such a fascinating place to locate this movie is in this sort of mythical country that's on the verge of war. Because in many ways that's all very periphery to what's going on, but also is obviously a part of the message that Bergman's trying to send. Um, Yeah. They can't communicate with this world, but this world is collapsing. Um, it's, It's very... It's very interesting. There's some talk about phallic symbols and stuff in tanks. I'm not sure. Like, I, don't,
1: I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, uh... well the scene with the child looking out the door, or looking out the window and seeing that tank, uh, I have no idea what Bergman might be trying to say with that. I definitely don't think he is trying to say anything phallic with that. I think uh, there's
0: a tendency among people, because... They have equated this film, because of the nudity, they have equated this film with sex. And therefore, there's probably a tendency to draw parallels between this and other sort of semi-crackpot sex-based theories.
1: Would you like to hear the worst of those?
0: Is it the one by Woody Allen?
1: No. Okay. No, it is not the one by Woody Allen. And you would think, given him being Woody Allen, that he could come up with the the worst worst one. one. Yeah, you would. Um... Uh, no, the uh, the IMDb message boards for this film.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot that we could include the IMDb more message boards in <laughs> in worst theories of a thing, because of course they will win every time. I yeah, that's that's fair.
1: That's. I fair. mean, Woody anyway, Allen doesn't stand uh, a
0: chance against the depths and yeah. pits of the internet.
1: There is a conversation uh, uh, on the IMDb message boards about whether or not. Uh, Johan and uh, his mother or his aunt or both uh, are involved in a sexual relationship. <sighs> to be fair. Evidence being suggested that the the, uh, the little people uh, put him in a dress, which suggests some sort of uh, gender confusion, which is, is often spurred cool. by childhood sex abuse and...
0: See, that's it what I'm very, saying. It's like, it as soon bad. as you have a little so bit of nudity in a was, movie, everybody assumes yeah. that the movie is about sex. Yeah. And it's insane. It really is. And
1: and, and to be fair, this movie is about well, sex. Well, it is about sex, but, it's, but it's, not it's actually about
0: sex like that. No, it, it's, a, it's it's not, less a movie about sex, and it's more a movie about communication. And, uh, and the fact that, movie, like, communication and, breaks down, and the like, only way this woman and, can communicate is. And sometimes with communication
1: involves sex. Yes. It is a communal act this is still a movie it is about sex in that our veteran and main character laments the fact that she has not had sexual content and, and masturbates at one point. And, and you know, uh, this is a movie where, uh, her sister lashes out by having sex, uh, in order to, you know, give her sister what for, um, you know, uh, Esther is smug, and that's true, but, uh, but she is right about Anna's anger being her own to own, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, Anna gets, Anna gets mad in that scene and says, you know, I only act like this because you're so high and mighty, you know, or words to that extent, but it's still, you know, it's, it's Right, you don't get to claim react. your anger is because of somebody else. Yeah. It, yeah. Your, your anger is your and, own. And that's the thing. Esther... Esther is holier than thou in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. That's not projection. But, but, Anna's response to that holier than thou attitude is still her own. Yes. You know, she's not, she's not being forced to act the way she is. And, and, you know, it's ultimately it's fine as long as she's not hurting anyone, but maybe she's hurting herself in, in how she's going about things. Right. Uh, but yeah. Is it interesting it is interesting to me um, in the final scene in the hotel while Johan and and Anna are preparing to leave. Did I switch their names? Like is Anna Anna's, Esther is no Esther's the
0: sick one and right? Anna's the is, okay. the, I didn't is want the, to, the yeah, the more yeah. active one.
1: Yeah. yeah, Johan's mom. Yes, there uh, so I was trying
0: to a, find an identifier
1: yeah, well, when Johan and Anna are preparing to leave, and Esther is in bed, and the porter is there, uh, it seems like he's actually understanding the conversation. Like, like suddenly he actually speaks Swedish, um, which is another secret hotel trick. Always pretend not to know the language. Right? Yeah,
0: <laughs> that, that's. I mean, that's a, it's a good <laughs> until it becomes rule.
1: imperative that you can. Uh, but no, he's reacting. You know, she says she says get me get me a piece of paper and a pen. Uh, and, yeah, she, like, generally motions toward him, not toward anything in particular. And he gets her the paper and pen and and writes the letter to Johan. Uh, so it's almost... Is there some implication that, uh, that he's learned Swedish from interacting with her? I mean, <laughs> she's least... learned a little bit
0: of his language. Maybe he's learned a little bit of hers. Yeah, yeah but she's got exchange.
1: the tools to learn. She's got the tools to learn a little bit of a foreign language, you know. She's a translator by trade, so... Wow. And to be fair, a hotel porter is kind of a translator by trade, too.
0: I mean, like, presumably, though, I mean, like, yes, perhaps she is better equipped, but people learn languages, especially in, yeah. in positions of necessity, uh, basic language stuff pretty quickly. Uh, I'm not going to say, yeah. like, he's not going to be, like, fluent in Swedish or anything like that, but he might have picked up the word for paper.
1: Yeah. One one thing that does actually deal across the board overtly in these films, um, and we don't necessarily get overt religious cr- crises, uh, but this all does deal with people uh, overcoming suicidal tendencies in the wake of the death of loved ones. That is something that happens in each of these films. You know? mm, that's true. Uh, <clears throat> the father in uh, Through a Glass Darkly uh Tomas the minister in uh, uh, last week 's film winterlight <clears throat> talks about talks about his, how he felt suicidal after his wife died that's that's part of the reason he can't help uh, right. Jonas overcome his own suicidal tendencies is because he's had that same suicidal crisis of faith uh, what's the point in going on um, and you know what we talked about at the end of uh, we didn't really get into this with later light the point of going on is to find whatever you can find in your hope and that's the end of the conversation in uh in uh through a glass darkly and that's why i i, I feel like these films like like we said last week these films would work almost better reversed well they they would work uh, better if your but, hope is for but they would, positive work, they would work differently. Yeah. If if you wanted to be positive, they would work in reverse. Whereas uh, whereas
0: we're actually tracking Bergman's personal progress through yeah. these these problems and the answer he comes out with is
1: uh nothing matters. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's
0: very it's a sort of a sort of nihilism. Um
1: sometimes you can't communicate and then in the end the end with the with the note you know if we're, and again maybe reading too much grasping at straws to to try and tie this more into the other films uh, you know anna or esther has provided this uh this translation you know this this holy writ piece of paper that will help <clears throat> you know if the porter is god will help you communicate with with the locals in the language in the language of heaven. Uh and not interested in it at all. Anna's not interested in it at all. She takes it from Johan and and looks it over and we never even get to see it. But you know, she just kinda tosses it aside. Um and that's that's the final image, right? Right. That's the final image of the film. Is is this you, you know, you finally have the tools to communicate but you're beyond caring that those tools exist.
0: Right. And and it's, you know, it's and it's interesting because the movie tries the movie deals with the universe on that level, but it's also dealing with also this very like down-to-earth, regular, you know, relationship between two sisters and the fact that like Anna just doesn't give anything about Esther anymore. Yeah. She's just done with her. I mean, they just left her essentially there to die. Yeah. Which is, I mean, like, that's
1: a... And and a subtle implication I mean that it's we, already happened. Yes. You know, she's on her deathbed, but the porter closes up the room and leaves it in darkness. And it, it even more claustrophobic as he walks out the door.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really like a deeply fucked up ending to this film. <laughs> Like it is. It, this is really upsetting. Like watching this film was a, a really upsetting, much more so than the other two films. It was much, much more upsetting, and and it's interesting because the film doesn't per se feel like that's where it's headed throughout the entire film. You don't imagine while you're watching it that your your final the last five minutes of the film are is going to be you watching one sister abandon the other one to death. Yeah. And, and not even caring, apparently. Not even caring at all. And it's interesting because, to my mind, whenever I see a character do that in a film like this, I immediately start to try and extrapolate what the rest of that character's life will be like. Because yeah. eventually Anna will have to deal with that. I mean, essentially, especially in Bergman's universe, at some point Anna's going to have to deal with that and 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 that's it's just a fascinating thing to imagine where Anna's life goes from here and wh- I mean also additionally like where is Johan's life go but um, it's just you know cuz that's a really dark place to be and 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 it, it's and if you take it on a religious metaphor, you know, I mean you're you're it, it, she's doing what so many people have done to so many other prophets along the way. Which is kind of like screw you old man, I'm out of here. Um <laughs> yeah, I don't need your shit and then like regretting it later kind of thing, but we don't see Anna regret it. We don't know that Anna ever regrets it. Perhaps Anna is a uh, some sort of sociopath. And uh will never regret it, but one has to assume that she will. Well, you hope so. Well, I mean, you, our choices are: she either does regret it and is a, kind of a normal human being, or she doesn't, and there's she's much more deeply broken than anybody would ever want to imagine. Because, I mean, you that I mean that was that was some dark and cold shit. Yeah, uh, and you know that's gonna have an effect on Johan, too. <laughs> because I mean like
1: oh no I mean the poor johan's
0: no. like I mean he forget all this like weird child abuse shit like I mean like yeah i I mean they're the only thing
1: like quote unquote has emotional baggage to to unpack from this trip right, right? yeah,
0: and I don't think they're most I don't think it's sexual emotional baggage I mean like he has to deal i I don't the only thing that makes that scene of him like washing her and stuff like that sexual in any way is the is the fact that like that's how Americans again read tend to read nudity yeah in any way. Yeah. But also like I mean she's a very sensual woman and so I mean her actions tend to read in that sort of sensual way. And and that's fine. I mean I don't think that's the emotional baggage she has to deal with. The emotional baggage she has to deal with is the fact that like, oh my mother abandoned her sister for death um yeah, exactly. at some point he's going to find out <clears throat> that Aunt Esther is dead. Um presumably he'll know. And he's the, pretty old.
1: And the nightmares he has about it for years involve uh an old man grabbing him and laughing and uh a bunch of uh a bunch of little people. Right, and probably some sort of spider god, let's be honest. <laughs> and certainly, certainly there will be a spider god at some point.
0: <laughs> and so I mean, yeah, I mean this is, this is that's some that's some fucked up shit this kid's gotta deal with. And uh it's it's just that's interesting to think about to me. That
1: uh you know Thanks Bergman
0: <laughs> basically <laughs> <laughs> This is where I'm right. with
1: this. To take this conversation in a lighter note. Okay. As Johan was running around the hotel, uh I kept thinking of the shining which is a very different movie about people with bad relationships with their parents. Yes, it is. Um, And then when he ran into the Troop of Little People, uh, I, of course, immediately thought of Time Bandits, which is another very different movie about people's terrible relationships with their parents. Um, And I guess what I'm saying is I just kind of wish Johan was the main character of this movie.
0: I mean, in many...
1: There's not enough characters to define him as not the main right, character. Right, I mean, we only have the, f- what, four? Yeah, five, I think, named people. And and two of their names are the porter and the waiter, so... Right. I mean, he is as
0: much the main character as his his mother and his aunt are, in my opinion. And, and we actually get more film time of him than anybody else, I
1: think. I, just because we've got, like, a half hour of the movie that is solely him running around so
0: right exactly yeah. yeah so I mean and and in many ways we we he is our our lens we see through his eyes so yeah yeah <laughs> the silence gets a lot of silence that's what the, the silence does get a lot of Well, silence, I mean this movie I think it's is just... really hard to unpack. I mean it's Yeah. I mean this movie is a is a is a is a hefty piece of work. And I mean I think it's reasonable that we would struggle with that. Um, I don't think it's it's out of character for us to have trouble with this. Yeah. Um And so I, I'm okay with us not having a lot to say about it. Um I will, you know, in many ways, I like the artistic style of the film, like the the visual style of it. Um, oh, yeah. I think um, it it is less harsh than the other Bergman films we've, some of the other Bergman films we've watched, especially in this trilogy. Uh, both Winter, especially Winter Light was very high contrast, very harsh to look at. Uh, this movie's a yeah. little bit softer. Um, which is fascinating to me. I, I don't know what if that's supposed to mean something to us on a sort of metaphorical level, but certainly on a practical level, it, it makes it for a, a different film-watching experience. It's a much more
1: um, kind of prettier film. I yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll agree with that. Um, I don't. Not that his other work isn't
0: attractive. It's just it's always got that very harsh lighting that is kind of
1: part of him. Yeah, I feel like there's a, uh, and maybe it's unrelated to the idea of the chamber film. There is a a uh, string in these films of things getting more claustrophobic. Right. Um, You know, we start on the island, and we start with our main characters on the island uh, coming out of the water. And entering into this world, um, and in the same way, in this film, we have our main characters arriving into this world on a train, and we don't we don't see them a lot outside of the train or the hotel. Obviously, we see them a little bit outside of those. Two, well, Anna, yeah, gets out. Yeah, Anna gets out. Um, <clears throat> and then in the center, we have the very chamber-esque of chamber films in that you know, principally these scenes take place in one of two chambers. Right. um, With a little outside work. Um, So, yeah, we're just, it's it's like, if there were a fourth film in the series, it would just be a single person sitting in a black box. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Addressing the camera. Essentially. Yeah. Which, which kind of happened in the last film. We didn't talk about that last week, but, uh, but where she's reading the letter. Oh yeah, no, as, she's just straight as, up as in DeMoss a box reading, reading like yeah. monologuing. Yeah. Which is uh, which is a very interesting choice for Bergman as compared to any of his other work as well, right?
0: Yeah, he doesn't um, do that. Yeah. You know,
1: we're we're talking about this in the wrong movie now, but <laughs> but generally yeah, it's that's, a, is a, that's a very surprising thing from. for him to have done. All right. One last question uh on the silence, I think. Okay and and we can be done. Uh, when they first arrive at the hotel, mm-hmm. and the, I think it's the porter looks out the window, uh, but we've got traffic noise and traffic noise, and we see crowds of people, uh. but no automobiles until ver- the very bottom of the frame at the end of, of the sequence. Uh, But the first time we see a horn, or we hear a horn, like a car horn, uh, Directly in the center of the frame is a donkey. Do you think the donkey produced that noise? (laughs) Yes, I do. Uh, Okay. What do you think that's saying about the nature of God?
0: um, I think that a rose by any other name would make a car honking noise. And (laughs) that God is (laughs) all-powerful and Uh that maybe it looks like a donkey, but maybe it's still a car.
1: Ah. Okay, so do you think? Uh, see, there's a story in the Bible, Old Testament, about Cars? Uh, a, a, a a donkey that talks. Okay, uh, do you think this porter god, uh, <laughs> not like spider god, but porter god, is causing this donkey to make a honking noise to try and communicate with someone?
0: Perhaps.
1: Um, more
0: more to the point, I think because this god is seems to be hyper concerned with Esther um esther is 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 in some way important to this to our to our porter god. I think it's yeah. quite possible that the the our our porter god is attempting to just comfort her by giving her sounds she's familiar with um in vain of course uh but nonetheless, I think that's what's going on here yeah, that's my answer
1: okay cool cool cool. Well next week we'll be finishing out this box set with uh Ingmar Bergman makes a movie. Uh,
0: <laughs> I can't deal with it.
1: <laughs> it is not As going it to goes be a nearly... movie. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> I uh, it's just it's it's <laughs> Ah, uh, if we could get a whole series of Ingmar Bergman does.
0: Yeah, films where Ingmar Bergman Ingmar is Bergman scared
1: stupid. Yep.
0: Yeah. Uh, Ingmar Bergman uh, goes to jail, Ingmar Bergman scared stupid, Ingmar Bergman goes, goes to camp. It'll be
1: great. It'll be great. Uh anyway, that is a 1963 documentary made during the filming of Winter Light by Gösta Schloman. Uh and it will be our final uh, our final Schloman, uh, so far in the Criterion Collection. Uh, His only films to make it in are I Am Curious, Yellow, and Blue, and this one, uh, which only gets put in because it's about Ingmar Bergman. I bet he feels Criterion Collection maybe didn't really respect him all that much. Uh, But that's fine. Um, So we'll be talking about that next week. Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick O'Hitari Dorgan. We'll see you next time. Bye.
0: Been listening to
1: Lost in Criterion, a production of with two brains.com. Hosted by Pat Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who also edits it down. Jonathan Hape did the music. Check him out at Jonathanhape.bandcamp.com. Look for us on iTunes. Or reach out to us at Facebook.com slash lost in criterion or lost in criterion at gmail dot com.